0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to spring today. It is nice, though, because it kind of feels like, at least for me, that the dog days of winter are coming to an end, I hope, until at least Tuesday, I think, right? It's kind of long, though, these long, uh, dark sort of days, gray days and all the rest. It reminds me of just several, uh, several days ago, I was um, uh, in a college class and watched some college students walk into the class together. I, I teach a class at Lincoln Christian University this semester, and um, when the students were coming in, a few of the students were coming in, I said, good morning, hi, how's it going, you know, and they sort of grunted in reply. Now, to be fair, it's an 8 a.m. class. How many of you are morning people? Of course, you're at the early service, right? <laughs> How many of you are not morning people? <laughs> Just grunt in reply right there, that's your chance. So I said, good morning, and they all grunted, and then I noticed that, uh, again, the three or four that were coming in at that point early on, uh, they all grabbed their phones and started looking at their phones immediately, and it was silent no words. And it got me thinking, it reminded me of a time when the preacher Fred Craddock sounded the alarm about a decade ago about the scarcity of words in our world. He was joking, of course, but he said he wondered that if if the recession hit, or when the recession hit, like kind of late 2008 or whatever that was, and he said maybe it didn't just hit our wallets, maybe it hit our vocabularies too. There's kind of a scarcity of words, and he would go on to describe how it's been especially hard on older folks, he said, like him, who had saved up words all their lives, hoping they could have enough until their passing, but now they had to dip into their savings to get some words, just not enough words to go around. He said he even hears words like some golden oldies, like conniption and gumption. There's not enough words. It even hurts married couples. Some are hardly speaking, he said. So few are the words that they can go around. Children are told, don't speak until you're spoken to. It's a problem. But the church is the one that's hard to sit because, he said, the church is a place of words. It's a family of words. And when people in the church stop talking to each other, well, then all of a sudden it gets real boring real quick. Church is just small talk, the same old small talk. It's the same old Bible lessons over and over and over again. Not enough words. So, he said, sometimes churches go into the vault to find some old words and to bring them back out again. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's scary. He said, some church in Tennessee decided to go into the vault where the vocabulary is kept and they brought out the word charismatic. Scared the whole denomination Someone asked, should we be speaking in tongues? And they said, no, no, we don't have enough words to go around now as it is. That's a luxury we can't afford. Put that back in the vault. I thought about that, though. I've noticed some people have talked about pulling out some old words from the from the vault, words like evangelism. Ooh, boy, I don't know. That's a tough one. Before it got sort of stored away, evangelism kind of became a little bit of a dirty word. started to sound like high pressure on the street, somebody approaching you, almost like a peddler. Hey, want a good time in eternity? I've got some some things for you. I don't know. Should we pull that one out of the vault? Or how about the word fellowship? That's a good word that somewhere along the way kind of limped into the vault years ago. Sometimes it had gotten so watered down that we weren't really sure exactly what that meant. You know, just... A meal in the church basement or Christian friends playing cards on Friday night. That's part of it, of course, but but outside of that, you know, I don't know, should we bring that out of the vault or leave that there? Or what about the word salvation? That's a good old word, salvation. Somewhere along the line got thrown in the vault. Some people use it all the time. Some churches use it all the time. Who got saved? How many got saved? Once saved, always saved, 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 saved. But we don't use it that much around here. I do think, though, we need to turn the tables on that. I think it's time to sort of dust off some of these words and give them life to, again, and I wonder, how can we who follow Jesus, how can we invite others to follow this Jesus in an age of word scarcity? How do we invite people to experience the life we know in Jesus? And there's a few options. One is, we just don't. We leave evangelism in the vault. Or another option is that we take out some of these old words and we do surgery on them. We fix them up to fit into the culture today and try to jam them into our progressive world to make sense, but that doesn't always work. Or a third option is to turn the tables on our culture by pulling out an old word and practicing it. And today we're beginning just this new series called Turning the Tables, and over the next several weeks, we want to just sort of dust off some of those old words, evangelism, hospitality, fellowship, salvation, dust them off, and see the way Jesus practiced these in his own ministry, especially in a world hostile to their use. Maybe, maybe, as we make our way to Easter, we can recapture a very simple practice that will help us in a world struggling with the scarcity of words. So this morning, let me just dust off one old word together with you, the word salvation. And maybe uh, it, will, it will help jog our memories with an old familiar story. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19 if you've got a Bible this morning. Luke 19 and verse 1 on page 852 And those Bibles right in front of you if you want to follow along there. Luke 19. Tells this story, pretty familiar story. Might help us jog our memory. Uh, Luke writes, "Jesus entered Jericho, and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. Well, that may be the song, not the scripture. He was a a chief tax collector." and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, ancient Mediterranean culture, that probably means he was under five feet tall, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and they began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. They began to complain and backbite and, and, and criticize. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Do you hear the old word there? Salvation. Jesus dusts that word off right here in this story. Maybe we need to dust it off too, clean it off. I think the story helps. Now, it's easy, I think, to sentimentalize this story and only to read it as, as sort of the children's Sunday school version of the story, as if the moral of the story is to say that Jesus loves short people too. But to the original audience, this was not a cute story. This was not a sweet situation. This is a radical situation. This is very, very different. Sweet stories don't start whispered backbiting. And that's what the crowd does, right? So why? Why is the crowd throwing a fit about this? Why would that word salvation send so many people into a uh, conniption? Let's use that word. Well, let's dig deeper into the vault of the story here for a minute. Jesus, it says, passing through Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Easter is coming, but there's going to be some cold days before we get to Easter. And so he's passing through this border city on the way. Jericho, one of the richest communities in Judea at the time, in the fertile valley there. It boasted a Herodian palace. It was a border town, so it had a customs office there, and they collected taxes there. (laughs) Now, taxes... In the Roman Empire, were a complex affair. Unlike the very fair and uncomplicated tax system that we face today, lots of taxes, lots of different tax collectors in their era, city rulers in that day, would put out for bid the ability to collect taxes for Rome in their cities. And so people would bid on the ability to do this, and they would pay in advance for this ability to collect taxes for Rome. So they would be out a lot of money. The collector then would win the bid, and then they would collect taxes not only for Rome, but they had to supplement their own costs to to get this job, right? And so they would add their own surcharge, whatever surcharge they wanted to add. You can kind of smell some corruption possibilities in that, can't you? And so in most of the empire, that job went to a wealthy Roman person. They were called publicans, and then they would hire others who would collect the taxes, and they'd be sort of the, the boss of the tax collectors. They would collect direct taxes, things like a poll tax, which is general tax for all the citizens, or they had land taxes on harvests, or they would collect indirect taxes on items that were bought or leased in their regions, including a type of sale tax. Plus, there were dues in major cities, things in Jerusalem or Jer- Jericho or Caesarea would pay those Sets of dues, and with each set of taxes, the tax collector would add their own little surcharge to it. And so you can begin to see how this felt. Especially if you're in business and you're traveling around the country, you might be taxed in this region and this region and this region and paid the surcharge all over the place. You can imagine how people felt about this. They had plenty of words for this. Imagine the gumption of those tax collectors. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Apparently working here in this Roman regional tax center, he had bid for his post, he had won the post, he had paid for it, he had organized the tax collection, he would probably hired some underlings uh, of tax collectors to do the actual collection, and many of those collectors would be, can you imagine, corrupt. They can charge what they need, what they want, And they had the Roman garrison behind them. So imagine, you know, Peter makes his daily catch of fish and he's making his way through town and the tax collector stops him. Zacchaeus or one of his tax collectors and says, hey, it's time to pay your tax. 50% for Rome. My surcharge is 20%. 70% tax for you. And if Peter threw a fit about that, he'd say, well, you know what, let's make it 80% today just for you. And if you said, I'm not paying that, then he'd say... Roman soldiers, could you come over here for a second? We're having a a bit of a problem. And he'd pay it at the end of a sword. Can you feel the sort of frustration that would come with that, the helplessness that comes in that circumstance? Plus, Zacchaeus was a Jew collecting taxes for the occupying power of Rome. He was a traitor to his own people. The two lowest people on their society's moral ladder we tax collectors and prostitutes. Uh, this sounds a lot more sleazy than a sweet Sunday school story now, doesn't it? And, and maybe for you this is a little bit hard to sort of wrap our minds around. Maybe to dust off this old word, it would help to insert a different word for Zacchaeus that reaches the bottom of our society's moral ladder. Maybe that would help shake it up a little bit. So, for instance, imagine, you know, what if Jesus were to eat dinner with Zacchaeus, the pedophile? How would you feel about that? Or or imagine Jesus inviting himself to dinner with with Zacchaeus, the neo-Nazi white nationalist racist. Or imagine if you saw a video of Jesus sitting around a campfire in an Afghani cave with Zacchaeus, the ISIS terrorist. Now, how would that make you feel? See, that's the kind of ripple going through the crowd here when when Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house to eat. He's eating with a sinner. Zacchaeus' name means clean or innocent, but nobody in Jericho thought that of him. Nobody in Jericho liked him. But Jesus says, let's have lunch. I must stay at your house today. Really? You must? I mean, pious Jewish people would never be caught dead going to a tax collector's home, let alone have a meal. They felt like anybody irreligious enough to collect taxes for a foreign power like Rome would probably not tithe their foodstuffs and so therefore you can't trust what they put in front of you and plus a meal in their culture meant acceptance it was a welcome of that person into your life Jesus welcomes him and Zacchaeus is blown away by this welcome of Jesus this Jewish rabbi this popular Jewish rabbi so he offers restitution for all of his crimes did you hear him he cried out half of my possessions to the poor a fourfold return to those he cheated. The Mosaic Law only required maybe a 20% restitution for most crimes. Major, major crimes like stealing an ox and slaughtering it. That might be a four- or five-fold restitution, but that's only if you had witnesses and can prove and this and that. Zacchaeus, though, he goes deep into his wealth and the most extreme repayment plan possible. Why? I think it's because Jesus dusted off this old word, and he brought it out of the vault, and he handed it over to the worst sinner of his society, and he said, today salvation has come to this house, salvation. Could you afford to hear that word again this morning? Maybe you're so grimy from the choices you've made in your life That you can't even imagine a God in the flesh calling you down from your isolation and welcoming you. But He does. This God does. In fact, I think He likes to use this word. I think He likes to throw it around. Even today, especially today. Is it time to accept this salvation in the life that you've corrupted? Is it time to see this Jesus and accept His welcome? I'm not sure Sandra could even define the word salvation when she came to me in complete desperation. It was 15, 16, probably 17 years ago, Carbondale, Illinois. She came to me, and I didn't really know her, and she sat down, and she couldn't even look me in the eye. Her life was a mess, she said. It started with a boyfriend here and a boyfriend there, and then she began to say to me she had slept with so many men she couldn't even tell me how many. And there were booze involved and then drugs involved and then stealing in order to make the purchase of the drugs that she needed. And then depression and despair. And her life was such a mess, such a mess. She couldn't even look me in the eye until at one point in the conversation she finally fluttered her eyes up just enough to look me in the eye and ask me this question. She said, could Jesus love someone like me? what do you say to that? What are the right words? Good words are so scarce, you know. Could Jesus love someone like me? I said, you know, that's why he came. To seek and save us. I don't know if you think those are the right words, but maybe you need to hear that old word today. Maybe you need to Accept the gift of Jesus and the grace of Jesus in your life and to feel salvation that's life not just when you die and forevermore, but life today with Jesus forevermore. Even today as you come and are in this place, if you've never accepted the gift of Christ, we want that for you even today. After our services, always in the family room afterwards, we're there to pray with you and to talk with you and to take next steps in faith with you, maybe today, maybe today. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, but notice that's not, uh, not just why he came, filling up this old word salvation with wonderful meaning. Notice also how he came. This is what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks, this, this daily practice of sharing meals. Did you hear that in the story, this meal with Zacchaeus? The two lowest people on Israel's moral ladder were tax collectors and prostitutes. And who did Jesus share meals with in the Gospels more than any other? Tax collectors and prostitutes. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now that's why he came, but notice also in Luke's Gospel, this isn't the first time he used that kind of language about the Son of Man coming. There's another little passage in Luke 7. Verses 33 through 35, Jesus is talking to the crowds at this point, and he says this. He says, John the Baptist came, neither eating nor drinking wine. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking. Do you hear that phrase, the Son of Man came? And he says, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. Now, in Luke's gospel, I love this, 50 occurrences of meals or food or eating in Luke. The story of Jesus itself has this kind of uh, picture of eating around it. Jesus was born, after all, in the beginning of Luke's gospel, in a feeding trough. And he ends the story in Luke's gospel with Jesus eating a piece of fish to prove his resurrection body. And Jesus seems to be eating all the way through the gospel. It's wonderful. Spend some time this week even reading through Luke's gospel. Just highlight every time you see Jesus eating or talking about food or, or whatnot, all the way through. In fact, one scholar from the New Testament, Robert Karras, writes, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. I like this Jesus. I want to be his follower. But more than just fondness for food... Here's what I want to see and what I want to practice in my own life and in in our lives together as a church. Tim Chester, an author, uh, puts it this way. Here's how he interprets this little phrase, the Son of Man came in Luke's gospel. He says one, uh, and maybe another, speaks to the mission of Jesus. That's what we got in Luke 19, the mission of Jesus. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. But he says the second use in Luke 7 speaks to the method of Jesus. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. That's how. That's how he did so much of his ministry. How Jesus dusted off the salvation word and presented it to people. He did it one meal at a time. His evangelism method, his fellowship method, his salvation method, a lot of his discipleship was to eat and drink with people. He offered salvation through sharing words around a meal. Talk about turning the tables on a word-scarce society. I wonder, what would it look like for us if we just took this very simple thing and we did it as well? If we just opened our homes and opened our hearts for people in our lives, if we, if we shared uh, our mealtimes as sacred space and invited people into that space, it is not the way our culture goes these days. So much of our time at home is our time. It's our castle. It's hard so often to invite people into that. But what if we invited people, even people far from God, to come and eat with us? I don't know what that would look like if we all did that. I do sort of know what it looks like if we don't do that. I want to be honest with you. I have seen during this wintertime a lot of really bad basketball. I love my high school boys. They play for Rochester High School. They're not that good. Records not that good, teams not that good. They're working on it, players are working on it, coaches are working on it, but the crowd's kind of sparse. And so one day, a week or so ago, I was watching and we were playing this team here and uh, it came to be halftime and I noticed that the cheerleaders from the other school, they were going to come out and, and, and perform a cheer in the middle of the court. But honestly, even as I'm looking up across the gym to their crowd, it's pretty sparse. Most people kind of check in their phones. A lot of people leave, go to the concession stand or wherever. And so these varsity cheerleaders come out on the floor to cheer to a pretty disinterested, not much of a crowd. So then I noticed that the JV cheerleaders who were in the crowd decided to sort of be the crowd for them. So they kind of all stood up right there on the edge of the floor. And the varsity cheerleaders essentially cheered to the JV cheerleaders. They were cheering themselves on. And I suppose, as I saw that happen, that feels better, but it completely undercuts the purpose. You know, they they ceased leading the crowd in cheers and have replaced that with a kind of an insider sideshow. But not us, right? Not the Church of Jesus in Springfield, Illinois. Not, Not us. We couldn't. We wouldn't go to all the trouble to to chant and to say good words and to spread the good news of Jesus only among each other and forget the crowd. Not not you. So here's my challenge to keep cheering good words to the right crowds. Over the next several weeks, I want to practice some radically ordinary hospitality. Hospitality. Rosaria Butterfield coined that phrase and she defined it this way. She says, Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors the family of God. In other words, it's just following the way of Jesus by making meals a sacred opportunity to love people as ourselves. And again, over the course of the series, we want to talk first about eating and drinking with the lost. That is, to have conversations with people who are far from God around a meal. The old word is evangelism. And then spend a few weeks talking about eating and drinking with the family of God. The old word is fellowship. What does it mean to come around a table together? And then to spend some time as we lead to Easter about eating and drinking with God. Communion is the word. Really, as Lent season on the church calendar starts up this week, we're we're twisting it just a little bit. Instead of fasting from food for Lent, which, of course, you're welcome to do, maybe we as a church, we could fast from isolation during Lent and share together with food. But in the meantime, here's my very simple challenge for you. Over the next couple of weeks, why don't you invite a coworker out to lunch? Maybe someone who's far away from God. Maybe you could host a neighbor over for pizza in your home or invite uh, your kid's little league coach over for Taco Tuesday at your place. That's it. And I know, all the flags start coming up immediately. I know, I know. But you don't have to rearrange your schedule. You're going to eat anyway. You don't have to have a spotless house. You don't have to entertain. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't even have to have an agenda. You just need a table. And unlock the front door and invite people in and to love them as yourself, to present and... and, and, Show the love of Jesus and the welcome of Jesus in a tangible way. You love this Jesus. You have experienced this salvation. It is a part of who you are. Now just love the person in front of you. Invite them. Welcome them. Love them. Eat with them. Pretty radical, huh? Might sound too simple, but it might just have our Lord... Pulling out an old word from the vault. Imagine Jesus saying to your friend, to your family member, to your classmate, to your coworker around the table with you. Imagine him saying to you, today salvation has come to this house. Because this person too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, let's pray. Father, um, it's so easy to think about, sometimes hard to do, but just to love people as they are around a table in a meal, help us to be intentional, Almighty God, with with this action, to be prayerful with this, to find ourselves hospitable, fellowshipping, evangelistic, dusting off those old ideas, Almighty God. That really aren't old ideas at all, but are as fresh as today, as needed as today. We pray you put in our path those people that we could love, that need love, that need that salvation that we have and we boast about this morning in our worship. Father, help us to be conduits in your community for the same Jesus who would look at the worst of society sinners and say, I'm coming to your house today. <laughs> Let's eat. Help us to say the same for the mission of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.